Welcome to Gravedigger Radio Podcast, broadcasting live from the afterlife. Welcome to Gravedigger Radio. In today's episode, we're going to be in part two of our spiritualism episodes as a larger part of the Harry Houdini multi-part series. So to begin, we want to see if you guys did your homework from last episode. Jason, take us away. All right, thanks. Yes, at the end of last episode, I asked our listeners to just uh, do a quick Google search, really, and look into the history of William Mumbler and his spiritual photography, and then also the uh, Cottingley Fairies case, which is particularly interesting. I think so, anyway. The Cottingley Fairies are absolutely fascinating. The reason I like it is because it remained a controversy decades and decades and decades after, like, when the, the, the photographs first came to light. So, if you didn't catch our first episode on the spiritualism movement, the Cottingley Fairies were a fascinating photograph from what time period are we looking at, Jason? Uh, The first one was published in 1917. So, 1917 of literally four fairies hanging around this girl with flowers in her hair, Mm -hmm. and they look very much like your artistic representations of a fairy like one of them's playing a flute they've got the classic kind of looking wing like butterfly Mm -hmm. style wings i mean these look like fairies that you would see depicted in art right whatever you know image pops into your mind as the stereotypical fairy that's exactly what we have here um the photos were taken by elise wright and her younger cousin francis griffiths and they lived in the small town of cottingley in england and they released five photos in all which showed the girls, Elise, who was 16 at the time, and Francis, who was 9 at the time, playing or just relaxing in the garden and surrounded by these fairings. You're you're right, with with little wings and flutes and the whole nine yard. Total Tinkerbell. Tinkerbell. Total. Are you having a stroke over there, Jason? What's what's her fucking name? Tinkerbell. Tinkerbell. God, we're both struck with it. Surrounded by fairies. We're talking like complete Tinkerbell mode here in their garden. And they, they took this series of five photos, which they released, you know, in, in order. This story caught the attention of and totally fascinated the legendary author, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Now, who, we're talking like Sherlock Holmes, Arthur yes. Conan Doyle. Yes. Okay. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was the creator and publisher of all of the Sherlock Holmes uh, series of, of short stories and novels. And he reprinted several of these photos in the December 1920 edition of the magazine The Strand, which sold out immediately, uh, making the, the story of, of the Cottingley Fairies even more of a, of a sensation. So we're talking about somebody who is clearly a deductive reasoning kind of mind, a very right. high-minded individual. Older guy, you know, by this time he was past middle-aged. Um, a world-renowned superstar had, had already published, you know, several of his Sherlock Holmes novels, a huge, huge superstar celebrity of his time who was completely and absolutely 1000% behind the spiritualist movement. He, by all intents and purposes, was like the standard bearer. He went on tours around Europe and North America, praising the graces of the spiritualist movement and everything it could do for society and how authentic and real it was. He was utterly and completely convinced. Now that really shocks me because if I was going to think of anybody that would be against the spiritualist movement, <laughs> it would be an author of these great, for lack of a better word, detective stories. Yes. At that time, because I mean, that's what Sherlock Holmes was, was a detective story. Yes. And so if he's all in with this, it it shocks me. I don't want to say it lends credibility to the spiritualist movement, 
it just really surprises me that he would be such a standard bearer for it. Right. The modern detective story as we know it was actually created by Edgar Allan Poe. Really? What is yes. Tale of the Rue Morgue yes, or something? Yes, that's the first detective story. That is considered liter- literally wise, the first detective story. Do you know who the killer was? Ah, not off the top of my head. <laughs> it was an escaped orangutan. And Are you fucking kidding me right now? Nope. That was the killer, an escaped orangutan. Yep. Well, I mean, there was a story, I don't know, probably 10, 15 years ago, of the woman getting her face ripped off by a chimpanzee. So, yeah, they're, I mean, they're, they're insanely powerful creatures. I, I don't like monkeys, man. They freak me the fuck out. I mean, they throw poo at you, and then they rip your face off. They're nasty animals. Yeah. I think that woman recovered, but still, extremely it's, powerful. If you live in trees for a living and swing around like that, I mean, you got to be pretty good, pretty jacked. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, enough to to kill somebody. I mean, <laughs> I am curious now on how many people die every year from orangutans. Who knows? Could be any one of us. Anyway, uh, back to Arthur Conan Doyle. Um, he went on to publish another book in 1922 called The Coming of the Fairies, in which he wrote that... Stop laughing. <laughs> in which he wrote that proving the existence of fairies was, quote, the opening the way to a new world. He believed this was like some big, huge insight into the spiritual realm, which again, you know, the spiritual movement was all about how the spiritual realm is just this other side of the veil. It's that close that certain really sensitive individuals can tap into it and communicate back and forth. So do you think to a degree he was influenced because Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was from the United Kingdom, right? Sure. So I know the Fay folk have a pretty heavy cultural influence. That's true. In the UK. It's big in Irish mythology, too. Right. So do you think he was kind of influenced by that, and that's why it was so easy for him to believe that these were real, and was this kind of the tipping point for him to say, all right, I'm all in on this shit? He was all in already, and had been for a while, and I think this case, because, again, this wasn't proven for a, disproven, I should say, for a long, 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 long time, well after his death, to be spoilers a hoax so about what time period are we looking at it being disproven 1980s oh wow so fairly recent memory yeah and and to his credit to um arthur conan doyle's credit he took these photos and you know he he brought them to you know photographers and professionals in the field he even went to the kodak corporation and said okay let's analyze these can you find any hint can you find any sign of like fabrication and they all said no now, we're talking early days still of photography, but they couldn't disprove these photos. So, I don't want to get too far into the story just yet. Yeah. But I'm sure that's coming. So, how did they fake these? Like, how enlighten me? Because, I mean, Photoshop wasn't a thing then. And you said <laughs> these girls were 15, 16 years old. Did yeah. they come from, like, were their families photographers? Like, how did they have the skills to do this? Um, the girls would borrow, you know, they'd just go out to play, you know, in the garden in the summer and they would bother, borrow their father's camera. And I think Elise Wright was the one, the 16 year old, and she was taking most of the photos to their dying day. They professed that they saw these fairies. <laughs> okay. Not bending any minds here. I should also mention, I just discovered this actually, like as a recording, the history of the Ouija board. And you know, this plays so in, so well into the fact that spiritualism continues to the modern day that we still market and sell, and I'm sure it's a big business selling these Ouija boards. Hang on a second. So you never answered my question, though. What? How, how did they fake them? We'll get to that. Okay, so it's coming down the pipeline. Yeah, all right, good enough. I just wanted to mention that people think, all oh, these silly people from 200 years ago believe in all this nonsense. But, you know, we still whip out the Ouija board, and, you know, I can see a bunch of teenagers at a party like you know 
turning the lights down and lighting some candles and whipping out the Ouija board and asking the spirits questions. Man, I had a Ouija board for, that was from Parker Brothers 1970s, made in Salem, Massachusetts. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was a super cool, super spooky thing. Yeah, and the, the history of the, the Ouija, I hope I'm saying that right, um, only goes back to the 1890s. That's not some ancient relic from like some clandestine witch cult or something. Right, no, and and a lot of people think that the Ouija board, like you said, is this kind of ancient witchcraft device, Mm -mm. but it's not. It's a fairly new thing. It comes from the spiritualist movement. And we will definitely do a full deep dive on the Ouija board at some point, because that is a very interesting story. It is reputed to give you um, answers to questions about the past, present, and future with with marvelous accuracy and promise to provide never-failing amusement and recreation for all the classes <laughs> between the unknown, the material, and the immaterial. So you may be thinking that the, the Ouija board is some ancient thing. Yeah, it's not. We're talking 130 years old-ish. Well, kind of going back to our Penny Dreadful episode, did this kind of play upon the escapism mindset of the lower classes to where, you know, life is generally hmm. shite, uh, for the lower class, especially talking 1800s, early 1900s, uh-huh. did it kind of give them something to, I don't know, have answers to their questions, give their, like, hoping to find greater meaning in their generally dull lives? Yeah, I think, and we've hit this thread a lot during the podcast, is that human beings are human beings, kind of regardless of, of when they were they were born and lived their lives. Like, we all kind of have this weird urge or need to to hear from beyond and have those unanswerable questions answered i think a lot of this spiritual spiritualist movement is a way kind of tapping into that again we did see a lot of death in this country you know in the 1860s with our own civil war and this spiritualist movement continues on up until the first world war as well um again hundreds of thousands of lives lost um entire generations of young people wiped out and you've got a country that's just stuck in this grief mode and trying to get answers, maybe communicate with the beyond. It's just kind of like clutching at anything that may provide answers or a little bit of closure or a little bit of meaning even to to these people that we lost. Do you think because there was so much death, both on the battlefield and just industrial accidents and just in life in general at that point, do you think that gave a little bit of fuel to the fire for the spiritualist movement of people wanting so badly for there to be another side and be able to contact that and know that after they died in whatever ways that they did die, that there was another side that they would go towards. I would say so. Um, like I said, I don't think people are all that different regardless of when they lived. Um, you know, we, we still do this stuff to our day. There are still spiritualists and mediums holding these sorts of seances or, you know, attempts to reach into the beyond. I mean, to this day, it's still a big industry. So we can't really turn up our doses at it too much because we still do it. But why is it the people that are spiritualists are always the most kooky looking individuals <laughs> you've ever seen? I will never be able to unsee the image of Gary Spivey, oh. the guy with the bleach blonde, like pure white afro. Yeah. Being the spiritualist guy. Or what is it like the New York medium or whatever the yeah. fucker name is? Yeah. Well, these are the types that, um, you know, looking ahead into probably the next episode. That uh, Harry Houdini was not fond of, to, to put it lightly. You know, our dear friend Patty Starr has been on the episode. Like, I fully believe everything she's told us and her conversations with the other side. So, And she's, you know, definitely meant to be an objective source for this. To me, she's one side of the spectrum. 
the yeah. folks that have TV shows are the other opposite side. Right, right. So what was real? What was really going on during the spiritualist movement, including the, the several cases that we mentioned in, in the episode before this one? Let's take a look about how this played out through history and in the long term and what happened to these cases and whether they were true or not. So let's go all the way back to the notorious Fox sisters. As I mentioned before, the two younger sisters took their show on the road and, and sold out lecture halls all across the eastern and midwest United States. And uh, Leah Fox, the elder sister, stayed behind in New York and did her, like, private seances. But by about 1888, you know, the girls had gotten older. They had gotten into relationships, started families and everything else, and were dealing with life. <laughs> and they just kind of lost their um, lost their eagerness to perform the show. Kate was having some problems maintaining a household, and she was dealing with some addiction issues. So Maggie, and she was acting with the blessings of her sister Kate, appeared before an audience at the New York Academy of Music and basically came clean. And if all of this makes no sense at all, we highly encourage you to go back and listen to the previous episode to get a better insight into the Fox sisters and some of their methods and, and their basic history in general. This is meant to be a multi-part series, and without that previous information, it's not going to make as much sense. So now would be a great time to pause this episode, <laughs> go back and listen to the previous Spiritualism episode, and then come back to this. We're very serious about doing your homework. Anyway, okay, so back to Maggie Fox. Now, she did receive a pretty handsome uh, paycheck, especially at the time, for making this announcement. Before a Fox sister's appearance at the New York Academy of Music in 1888, she came out and stated that, yeah, this was all just an elaborate ruse. Now, it had started innocently enough back in old Hydesville, New York, and the girls were playing a prank on their neighbors. And it just kind of quickly snowballed and got out of hand. And nobody ever realized that the first time that they invited someone into their home to witness the spiritual knockings was April 1st. So how were they doing the knockings? Like, how were they playing the prank? <laughs> the original knockings had been made with a string tied around an apple. Okay. <clears throat> right. And they had dropped this between the floorboards like into the next floor or in between the floors. And so they could let's pull on the string, tug on the string, and boom, 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 create okay. these these pops and, and thunks and raps. Later on, once you know they thought, okay, we can't keep pulling this forever because people eventually find the strings, they practiced cracking their knuckles and their toes in order in, in, in sequence to answer their own questions. And it was a loud enough pop and consistent sound to where it would yes. replicate the knockings? Yes. And the rest of it was just, just utterly fraudulent. Like the spiritual writing and all that stuff was just them writing down whatever they thought the audience wanted to hear and then allowing the audience to provide the rest. If you ever studied like these hucksters that kind of um, perpetrate these hoaxes, it's all about asking very vague questions until you can gradually grind, drill it down, drill it down, drill it down into the specific and then kind of hone in all that and just like ram it home at that point. So that's, that, that's kind of what they would do. And I'm going to ruffle a ton of feathers with this. But this applies true to your tarot card readers, your fortune tellers, your soothsayers. Through the power of generalization, you can kind of deduce what someone's history is by just giving very vague answers. Yes. People will automatically want to apply it to their own lives. And that's perfectly human. Like, there's yes. nothing wrong with that. But it definitely goes back into, uh, was it Madame Cleo? And a lot of that fortune-telling stuff, you know, call me, that old gal. Yeah, call me now! <laughs> yes. And, oh, don't worry, a Madame Cleo episode is coming down the pipeline at some point in, in the future. But it it 
all kind of falls back into that to where if you give vague enough answers or you receive vague yes. enough answers, you will instinctively try to apply it to your own life. And that's just human. That's what we do. We want to have meaning to the meaningless. You, you, you kind of at some point want it to be real. And maybe you're your own worst enemy in that moment. But um, I actually took a class here at the University of Kentucky with one of my own professors, the great Dr. Jenny Rice, who teaches a class about conspiracy theories and how these people use, you know, rhetorical tricks to convince you of what they want to convince you of. And we would actually bring in to the classroom students from other classes and we'd set them down and we would learn to read them. Of course, none of us were mystics or psychics or mediums of any sort, but just using a few basic, you know, tricks i don't even call them tricks just observational techniques you could like get some information about a person and then just hone in on that and start asking them questions and based on their responses they'll do the work for you yeah because literally every person has a grandmother and a grandfather sure to be alive today sure so that's easy pickings sure You're, and obviously they're probably advanced in age and there's a good chance one of them is no longer living yeah and so that is easy bait in the field right there Little things, you know, like I've got a wedding band on, start asking questions about that. Zach's got a lot of tattoos, let's start asking questions about that. And eventually it leads you to something that you can kind of lock in on, and it, it it's almost as if, wow, how do they know all that? Well, they're just reading you, and then you're providing the rest. And honestly, that's what I did with my business at like Comic-Cons <laughs> and tattoo shows, is that was kind of my superpower. Is somebody would come into my booth with some weird, obscure, like, keychain or t-shirt yeah. or something. And I could immediately pick up on that and direct them to whatever merchandise I had that fit that clientele. Yeah. And would make a sale because they were so shocked that I knew that. They were like, how did you know? I was like, ah, oh, it's a gift. I was like, no, I just pay attention. The power of just giving a damn about somebody is, is really, really impactful. And especially a lot of the people that came to these seances, especially it being kind of a big public event, they already came with kind of a goal in mind. Right. Or someone in particular that they wanted to contact. Yes. And so as soon as you gave them the smallest nugget of contact or, or information, they were all in. They were fully invested as their person into making this contact. So yes. it made it very easy for these seances to seem like they worked because that person was so excited to have any information at all that they had completely bought in. And it's very easy to get a crowd to feed off of one person's excitement and, ri and a ripple effect throughout mm -hmm. the audience. Mm -hmm. Well, what about the spiritual photography then? Because that's just the flash of a camera and... I, I'm That one I don't know nearly as much <laughs> about. The Fox Sisters, I had done a little bit of research prior to this, just independently, not related to the podcast, just yeah. because I thought it was fascinating. It's a big case. It, it's it very really famous. is. But the spiritual photography one, Jason, that's one I really don't know a whole lot about. So, so shock me here. Well, good old William Mumler, he was eventually caught as well. And, you know, this is the early, early days of, of photography. So he was just kind of really good at the old double exposure. So he'd take photo one and then leave the frame open and then put a photo over top of it and just blend it in with what he was already bringing in. And just make it look a little fuzzy so that you kind of apply your own meaning to yeah, it. Yeah, leave, leave a little bit of wiggle room. Um, he was known to, like, acquire photographs of loved ones from the families beforehand or even steal them. And bring them in and blend them into his, you know, using this double exposure technique. Um, eventually, he was actually put on trial for fraud in New York City. And we mentioned Barnum before, but this is the P.T. Barnum, um, the great circus tycoon. 
And he had a photographer friend, a Mr. Abraham Bogardus. And that is great with a capital G. Yes. Not The great. ultimate showman. Right? Yeah. He was an absolute bastard, a terrible human, but undeniably <laughs> great with a capital G. Well, at least he was doing it for fun and laughs and not for like emotional blackmail kind of purposes. Fair. And he didn't like these people either. So when he, he actually appeared during the trial of William Mumler about fraud, and he and he and Abraham Abraham Bogardus were able to perfectly replicate the Mary Todd Lincoln photo. So that's my that was what I was getting ready to ask you, is how did they manage to get like the hand placement so perfect on the actual photograph subjects? Well, maybe they, uh, they could use like, you know, again, time exposure, have someone else do the pose and then put Lincoln on top. Okay, because like, these things will be happen to be open for a while, to like a force perspective kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so they were able to um, completely replicate the Abraham Lincoln photo, except they had Barnum in the chair <laughs> <laughs> with Abraham Lincoln standing behind him and being all affectionate or whatever. And uh, so this kind of like totally ran Mumler out of the spiritual photography business, but he ended up being a very gifted photographer, and he and he later actually invented something called the Mumler process which was a way of creating the photoelectrotype plates that were used in taking photos. Um, he, he continued to work throughout his life as a photographer and kind of like buried the fact that he was once like totally exposed for being this huckster and um, doing the whole spiritual photography thing. I mean, that's that's kind of awesome, though. I mean, to, to a degree, it definitely does speak to the technical skill of the photographer Yeah, to be able to overlay these images in such a way where it looks like the spirit of a loved one is directly trying to interact with you yeah. in this picture. So he may have been an absolute, you know, hoax. He was taking advantage of people. Definitely taking advantage of people, but still a damn skilled photographer. And if you haven't looked at these pictures before this episode, definitely go check them out. I yeah. mean, they are deeply fascinating. Looking at them while we were recording the last episode, I was shocked. Like, you know, you think about this was a time period before Photoshop. So yeah. if you see a spirit, directly superimposed on a person to where they're interacting yeah you know it's not a time period where there was a lot of fake photography going on and nobody had thought of that yet nobody <laughs> thought of it so you really don't have a reason to discount it you know, photo these machines weren't in every home you had to go somewhere to some studio to have this done professionally right exactly and so at this time period you know a picture's worth a thousand words yeah somebody can say they saw something but if you're actually looking at these photographs you don't really have a whole lot of reason to discount them because right, and is... you wouldn't understand the process. How could this happen? Right to you, it's it's essentially magic. Right, right. He's a photographer. He's an engineer of sorts, and he, uh, like I said, went on to gain a little bit of fame for um, creating his own processes that moved the field ahead. So he was a a master at his craft. He could easily easily trick people, and don't think you know. And to our eyes, if you go back and look at these photos now, you think, oh, how hokey. You know, it's obviously just something superimposed or added in later. I'm actually going to disagree with you. Yeah. Because I looked at them while we were recording, and knowing what I know about the photography processes at that time, mm -hmm. they did not immediately jump out at me as being super hokey. Oh, okay. It's, I could easily see how the people... Well, you're a little more gullible than some of us, that I, <laughs> I prefer the term open-minded, but I could easily see how someone at that time period would buy this wholesale. Well, I'll tell you a story from my personal life. My mom worked in a nursing home for most of her career. This is a small town in Kentucky. You wouldn't know it, so I'm trying to be confidential still yet to protect people involved. My mom um, once brought home a, a, a Polaroid to me, 
Because, you know, I was always a weird kid, man. I always liked this creepy stuff. You're still a weird kid. <laughs> I, I guess so. 12-year-old Jason's still a weirdo. It's basically who I am inside. But anyway, she brought home this photo, and she's like, you know, keep this quiet. But, you know, I thought you'd think this was cool. And she brought me home this Polaroid because, you know, sometimes the families would come in, and they would just take a photo of their loved one who's in the nursing home. You know, it happened every day. But the nursing home had confiscated this one so they could, like, quell it, you know. Because the photo was of the person lying in their bed, you know, smiling or whatever for the camera, but kind of, you know, on top of that, superimposed whatever, you could see the figure of the previous resident who had passed away in that same bed. And mom was like, holy shit, you know, <laughs> she was like freaking out. She's like, yeah, we're keeping this quiet. We don't want people to think that the nursing home's haunted. Oh, nursing homes and hospitals are just focal points of hauntings. Yeah, but see, I went total PT Barnum mode and I'm like, Mom, yeah, this is a cool photo, but it's one of these old Polaroid Kodak cameras. It's just a double exposure. Like, if you went one reel back, it's probably the photo of this lady that passed away, and then the next photo taken was this one, and it's probably just some double exposure or whatever to the film. And she's like, oh, well, that makes sense. <laughs> so, so was that what it was? Well, I don't know. I had no way to verify that, but because like things like the bed rails were showing up, and I'm like, are you going to bring your bed rails back with you from the afterlife? Like, that's a physical object with no spiritual force, right? Right, exactly. Like Mesmer would be like, well, that's not coming back. That's not part of the spiritual mojo. That's a freaking piece of iron. There's there's no personal tie to that object. Right. It, and it's just an inanimate thing. Still, though, it's deeply fascinating. It was a cool photo. It's a cool photo, regardless. But I like to think that I debunked that for her. And she was like, oh, yeah, you're probably like, we're not, we're not haunted. Well, look at you, fancy pants. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, you know, we're we're getting close to time here. So tell us about the fairies photo, okay, man. Okay. I've, been, I've been dying to know about the fairies photo. Back to the fairies. So throughout their entire lives, uh, the two girls claimed that, yes, they saw these fairies and the photos were authentic. Um, it wasn't until right up, honestly, until their deathbed confessions in the 1980s that they did confess that, yes, they had staged the whole thing. So how on earth did they do it? Well, they took um, cutouts from popular art magazines of the day. And they um, traced over them to get the figures, and they added the fairy wings and all that kind of stuff. They cut them out, and then just, like, put them in the scenes with them. They, like, hung them on the trees to, like, hairpins or something or strings, and just mounted them in the grass or on the... And then and took the photos. So, yeah, to those people at that time, they didn't see that there was some manipulation to the film because there wasn't. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it was an object in that film with them, but it was just a cardboard cutout from art magazines that they had traced over and then added the wings and, you know, fancied up a little bit. Which, that makes perfect sense now that you say it, because when you look at the pictures of them, mm -hmm. they are so well-defined right. that, like we talked about with the photography of the dead people, uh -huh. that you can tell that these are not moving objects. Right. If you know anything about, you know, 1800s photography, in order to be that clear and crisp, they're not moving. Yeah. So um, Elise passed away in 1988 and Francis in 1986, and yet they still both professed that they encountered these fairies, but they were almost impossible to catch on film. So what they ended up producing was like, you know, facsimiles of what they had seen. A dramatic reenactment of the scene, essentially. Yes. Okay. So the fairies were still real. The photos were fake because they couldn't actually get photos of the fairies. So they produced them. <laughs> I, I want to believe. I I so badly want to believe that they're telling the truth. Yeah. But I'm kind of, you know me, I'm always a little bit skeptical. All I have in my garden are mosquitoes and slugs. Right. Exactly. And some snakes on occasion. Oh, yeah. Plenty of snakes, but I like them. 
So to me, I I don't know. I mean, we're talking what time period are we talking with these photographs? Late eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds. Oh well, the fairies were in the early twentieth century, and they didn't confess that they were faked until the late twentieth, like the nineteen eighties, nineteen eighty three. And there's enough popular writing of this time period about the fae folk to where these girls, because it could have easily just read about them and said that they saw them. I don't know, man. I'm kind of I'm a doubter on this one. <laughs> Personally, I I think it's just a good hoax they're putting on of like. You know, if these girls had a, a Facebook or a MySpace at this time period, they would have totally had their fairy pictures on there as their profile picture. Oh, yeah, yeah. I just, I don't know. I'm calling bullshit on this one. Wait, you're saying those people with like the kitty cat and puppy dog faces? You're saying that's not real? I, I know, right. Son of a! I mean, goddamn furries. <laughs> <laughs> well, so you would think that, you know, with the debunking of all these like really high profile, prof- high profile international cases of spiritualist photography and seances and blah, 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 that all that would have died out, right? But why do we still have it? Well, I don't know. I think we're going to tune in the next episode to find that out, man. Guys, hope you enjoyed this little bit of debunking on the previous episode. They're definitely fascinating stories and interesting pictures, to say the least. But here at Gravedigger, we're kind of in the mindset that it's a lot of flim flammery and a lot of bullshit. So we hope you enjoyed this tale of fairies and supernatural photography and seances and if you enjoy what we're doing here at gravedigger radio and you want to support the podcast head over to patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash gravedigger radio i wonder if we can get the fairies to donate i don't i'm pretty certain with fey folk uh lore if they donate we're then married to them but i mean i don't know that doesn't sound like the worst thing in the world pays the bills i mean it might So, guys, hopefully we don't get stolen by the fae before next episode, and be sure to tune in next time to hear another spooky tale.